My name is Scott Newman, and this is 27 Rouge, a podcast about nothing in particular, a sort of Renaissance man's guide to conversation named in tribute to James Dean, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Amy Winehouse, and the many other beautiful souls and kindred spirits vanquished from existence at the shared, all too ripe and tender age of 27. I'm an associate editor at Quillette, a writer, a skier, a scotch drinker, and a cultural commentator. Each week, I sit down with interesting people and discuss everything from cocktail napkin anecdotes to the state of world affairs, cultural issues, books, movies, science, fashion, and everything in between. This week's guest is Rolling Stone editor, Useful Idiots podcaster, and celebrated underground author Matt Taibbi. If ever there were a man with range, it is Matt. We're talking about a dude who's written books on debauchery in post-Soviet Russia, the aptly coined great derangement of American society, banks behaving badly, how today's news media makes us despise each other, and the business secrets of drug dealing. In late December of 2021, Matt and I met up to chat about what's become of today's media establishments, how American tribes operate with different sets of facts, the extent to which kingmakers walk among us, the state of America's role in world affairs, hucksters and con men in relation to the American dream, and, of course, Hunter Stockton-Thompson. Alice, thanks so much for joining me today, Matt. Um, it's good to have you on no, the show. No, thanks for having me on, Scott. Yeah. So without further ado, I just I sort of want to get into uh, a few a few interesting topics, a bit eclectic, but we'll we'll see where the conversation goes. Sure. I, I was reading one um, one of the Substack uh, emails that you sent out. I think it was like a week or two ago, um, and I mm-hmm. want to talk about this term "white supremacist." You know, it, it gets thrown <sighs> around a lot in in America today, particularly with. Uh, the written house trial. I thought that was a particularly egregious instance of the term just being very freely used. And I mean, personally, you know, I, I think it's it's horrible because there are real white supremacists, domestic terrorists out there. And I think a term like this should be reserved for them so that we can identify them. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I guess my question is, is this something of like a linguistic shift or a cultural shift? And what what does it mean that, you know, terms like this are just sort of being thrown around in, in, in common discourse? I, I think it's a it's a cultural shift. Uh, it's also a uh, an industry shift. So uh, I talked about this with a couple of friends of mine who work in who are also reporters. You know, once upon a time, we, w- we would have been afraid to use that word unless we had something that we could show to a defamation attorney that would justify its use. So again, the, the, the job once upon a time was whenever you came across something that was potentially defamatory or libelous, you know, that was when you, you needed your fact checkers. That was when you needed to talk to your lawyers and you had to have something that you could show as backup before you you describe somebody in a, in, in a way that could affect their career, their lives, their marriages, whatever. I mean, all they have to do is show damage, you know, from from what you've written, and you 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 can be in very serious career trouble. So when I first saw that Rittenhouse was being described as a white supremacist, I assumed there had to be <laughs> be something there because you know people in my generation we we would just never have written in that unless there was membership in a in a group that you could classify that way and there isn't there's just these vague cultural markers you know he carries a a gun that's kind of scary looking he 
You wore a green shirt. I don't think that's enough. I think you need more than more to go on than that. And then I think that's that's it's 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 a very unfortunate development in media. Yeah, I mean, I think also it's not just with Rittenhouse. Um, I I tend to stay off of the Twitter sphere to the extent that I can anyway. But I think the the liberty with which people just sort of throw around terms like uh, Nazi or even you know to to a lesser degree, misogynist or bigot or racist or homophobe or transphobe or whatever. Um, and, and communist, to be fair, like that's, a, you know. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. On mm-hmm. on <laughs> the right, the right is very good at doing this as well, of labeling, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, you know, calling calling progressives commies, which is also also, I think, a different strand of of the same kind of issue. But I guess the question is why? I mean, we had at least going back to the Rittenhouse thing, the president of the United States came out and and said that this guy was a white supremacist. And it's like, if gold rusts, what will iron do? If we have the guy at the top <laughs> doing it. I know. Yeah. 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 And 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 there's there's no there's no standard until somebody sues and wins for, for doing that. I'm assuming there are there are gonna be some lawsuits in this one because, you know, he's got some pretty clear I mean this is a this is a textbook case. Of, of the kind of stuff that we were trained to avoid. So, but if there isn't, then it's going to continue because, and this is, it, it's something that we started to see in 2016 when, when Trump, uh, started to have a lot, of, a lot of success. You started to see this kind of drift. So instead of race baiting, which was a, t- a term that journalists used a lot or, um, racially tense, Suddenly, those beca- that became racist. Then racist became white supremacist. It was like it was sort of like grade inflation, uh, <laughs> but for for language, right? Right. And as you point out, like a lot of these these words have concrete meanings that get watered down when you start applying them to lots and lots of people. So if you're suddenly describing everybody who voted for Donald Trump as a white supremacist, well, then what do you call Richard Spencer, right? Or or one of the, you know, somebody who belongs to one of those groups. It just creates a problem. And, you know, I also think that the people in news media underestimate the amount of rage that that inspires among people who uh, get hit with that word. Like they, you know, they don't rebound from it. They don't have a sense of humor about it. I I, I don't think they should, frankly. You know, I mean, it's it, it's people who are just really being entirely too casual about that stuff. Well, uh, on the flip side of the coin, you could say that they are well aware of the damage that inspires and they, you know, they're they're interested in in stirring up shit, for lack of a better word. They, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. Right. But I, I covered the, the Trump campaign and I was with all the reporters who were following Trump around, which was a very interesting and bizarre experience in, in, in 2015 and 2016, because we all had very different opinions about what was going on, what we were watching. And I was continually mystified by the degree to which the people who were covering Trump didn't understand where the anger was coming from. Like the people in the crowds hated us. Like Trump figured out early on that if he pointed to us and the, and the reporters were always standing on a riser, you know, we're surrounded by ropes. We look like idiots. He, he figured out early on that a, any insult he threw at us was going to work. And there was all these, there were all these hurt feelings among the press corps. Like, you know, what, what's wrong with us? Why do they hate us so much? 
and they genuinely don't get it. Like they, they, you know, I would have these arguments with people and say, this goes, you know, this just goes back a long way. It starts with the WMD thing, but mainly it's because of the caricatures we, we throw at the, you know, the, the sort of dumb hayseed red state follower Republican who just has regressive views about everything, that caricature, which is sort of so, it's just so common. And, um, and they, they, they think that, uh, that people aren't listening or that, that it doesn't have an impact, which it does. Yeah. Like I think one of the more sobering books that I read was Hillbilly Elegy, which sort of shed light on a lot of this. And then one of the things that I noticed is I personally, I used to like Vice. I thought it was really cool, underground, like edgy, gonzo stuff. But now the the sort of uh, hayseed caricature that you've described is literally every single headline for them. Um, and it, a lot of people do believe um, these are just sort of uneducated, bigoted, uh, racist, old, fat, white dudes with shotguns who hate everyone. <laughs> and, and yeah. that's, and then, and then they're shocked that, you know, something like Trump happens. <laughs> so yeah. It, and it's not just a bad caricature that is uninformed and comes from a place of not speaking to any of these people, but it's also just, it's just illogical. Like when you think about a country as big as the United States, the, the variability in the population, it's going to be so unlikely that everyone is going to fit into this cookie cutter uh, image that you have of, you know, a type of political character. People are very idiosyncratic in this country. It's very regional. They, like their opinions come from, uh, from all over. And, um, and oftentimes their, their positions are, are, are much more thought out than, than we give them credit for. Like I, I remember having this experience in, in, in Utah, uh, during the campaign when, uh, Romney was running against, um, o Obama. And there was a, there was an argument about the Defense of Marriage Act and whether or not, uh, you know, there should, we should allow a same sex marriage. And there was this older couple, um, that was talking about how they were, they were against that. And I, like a typical New Yorker, I said, well, do you know any gay people? And they were so offended. They're like, yeah, we know lots of gay people. Like, that's not the issue. Uh, we've thought about this long enough. We prayed about it. Like, and they, they went to this whole thing about how this was a very difficult decision for them. Like, they had, they had to really, really work through, you know, the, the, the doctrinaire side of it versus the emotional side of it versus the policy side. Um, and so when you try to paint these people with a simplistic brush, it just, it's, it's inaccurate almost a hundred percent of the time. Right. I mean, I think the other thing that's, that's important for us to remember is oftentimes we think of the caricaturing as, as something that not these terms used to mean something. Now they're, they're a bit devoid of meaning, but that the left will throw at, at the right, but the right is quite good at caricaturing the left as well. Oh yeah. 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 But the, the, the problem is those caricatures work more often, like this new, you know, the new caricature of the kind of woke leftist. And also, you know, the, the, the right wing audiences are very attuned to the little differences between the various factions that used on what we used to call the left. Like they they know the difference between somebody who identifies as a kind of ACLU liberal like me 
and somebody who's a more like of a modern leftist, like they're, they are in tune with that. Although the Republican politicians just sort of lump everybody together as communists, but, but online, I think they, they I, I think they actually, in general, they, they're a little bit more attuned to the different species of people on the other side than, than you would get from the, the New York Times or the Washington Post where, where they only really see two, two types of Republicans. There's Trumpers and never Trumpers and never Trumpers to them are basically the same thing as like hashtag resistance Democrats. So if that makes any sense, it does, sense? it does make sense. The nuance is, yeah. is astounding. And of course I'm, mm-hmm. I'm being facetious when I say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but exactly. I'm, I mean, speaking, speaking of, of caricatures, I want to return just for a second to two years ago. Uh, you know, you published hate Inc, which I thought mm-hmm. was a phenomenal book for the record. Um, and, you know, in, in the book, you know, you, you, you sort of documented the various ways that media organizations attempt to, I guess, encourage and in some ways inculcate this, this kind of tribalism that we're seeing, like this team choosing. So here we are two years later, 2021, Trump is out of the White House. We're two years into COVID. It seems like we're over the, the worst of it hopefully. And so, you know, anyway, it's been it's been two years since Hate Inc. came out. Where are we at in 2021 with uh, some of this kind of stuff? It's funny. When I, when I first wrote Hate Inc., I was really worried about the title because I thought it was too extreme. Like, I, I, I thought, you know, nobody nobody's going to believe this. It's that's not really descriptive of what we're and now. I, now I think I undersold it. Like the differences have accelerated so much in the direction that I was talking about. That just in the, just in the space of time it took to write the book that, um, that, uh, it's almost a completely new landscape because when I started writing that it was like, you know, 2017, late 2017, there were still some vestige of the old objective media left. I mean, I think there were, there was, there were still some intramural battles at places like the New York Times and the Washington Post over what the model was going to be. And by the time I finished the book, that was, it was gone. It was completely demolished. The only model left is really that tribalistic model, the size choosing model. And a lot of that has to do with finances. You know, the times has adopted kind of the same revenue model that, that Substack has where I work. They're subscription based. That's where they get the bulk of their money. They're, they have the world's biggest subscription base. And the the difference there is that that incentivizes them to create this kind of sense of um, solidarity among its uh, followers, whereas the old New York Times had the pretense of talking to the entire world. There were the authority that everybody from the people on the farthest left to the farthest right, they all came to the New York Times to get the definitive word on what was true and what wasn't. Now they're kind of seeking out an audience that all fits roughly in the same bubble. This is a very new development. Like they didn't do that before. So yeah, all, all those tendencies have accelerated a great deal since they, even since I published that book. Right. I mean, and I guess for those who, for, for our listeners who haven't uh, had a chance to read, read the book yet, how far back does some of this go? You know, you've pointed to, to WMD as, as maybe the, the starting point of some of this, but I, I have some specific questions uh, to get into about this in a bit, but just like a little soundbite here. Yeah, I, sh- I should just summarize what the th- thesis of the book is. So 
Yeah, I forgot forgot to do that. So basically, the I wanted to write a book that was like an update of Manufacturing Consent, which was this sort of great Noam Chomsky media criticism book. Yeah. And I talked I talked to him before I wrote the book. Kind of got his blessing to do it, and it was based on my own experiences working in the business for you know 30 years now. And the the big change in in the media business is that in the 70s and 80s. The financial model was you were trying to get the entire audience. So if you were producing the nightly news for CBS, your strategy was you wanted to create a newscast that everybody in the family could watch, you know, from the crazy right winger to the, the, the left wing kid who's in college. Like everybody gets around the table. They all watch the news. It's it's a, it's kind of a unifying experience, or at least it's a it's an inoffensive experience. What happened for a variety of reasons in the 90s and 2000s was that that no longer became feasible. And the new strategy, which was symbolized by Fox, was to um, let's pick a demographic and let's try to dominate the demographic rather than try to get everybody. Let's say let's get all the conservatives and especially the older rural to suburban conservatives who have a lot of disposable income. They'll make a great advertising base. We'll feed them news stories that they like, you know, about the, the good old days being worn away. You know, we'll scare them with pictures of uh, non-white criminals and immigrants and and uh, liberals on campus. And that that became their financial formula. It was very successful for them. But I, when you ask where does it go back to, I think it starts with that, because what happened organically was when all the conservatives went over to Fox to Rush Limbaugh and places like that, everybody else kind of by default went to those other places. So, you know, PBS, NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, MSNBC, CNN, they all became, you know, almost overwhelmingly their audience was uh, democratic. So if you, if you look at the numbers by like uh, media, uh, sort of watchdog organizations like the Pew Center, you'll you'll see that it's almost exactly it's like the numbers for Republicans at Fox are exactly the same as the number for Democrats at MSNBC. It's or the New York Times. So uh, so that's where we are. You know, it's it's it, the the business model is pick an audience feed them stuff, you know, that they're going to like and just keep doing it. Right. No, I mean, it's interesting to see how that's developed. Certainly in, in, in my lifetime, that's that's the only kind of news that I remember watching. Which is interesting to me because I yeah, like I meet all these people like like you who don't know any other way that it's ever been. And it, it's so bizarre because, you know, when I was a kid and when I watched my father do the job, it was totally the opposite. Yeah, it's weird. I have this. I I studied history. I studied history of journalism, actually. But you know, so I have like this weird nostalgia for for something that I've never myself experienced. <laughs> <laughs> never experienced. That's funny. Um, but you know, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned manufacturing consent, Noam Chomsky's Noam Chomsky's work. Uh, that you know that came out in in uh, 1988, I believe. And then mm-hmm. in 2001, Joan Didion wrote political fictions, which covered a lot of the same kind of stuff and was was really 
quite interesting for me to read. I think it, yeah, I have I have the quote here. You know, she talked about a handful of insiders that invent year in and year out the narrative of public life. So this weird amalgam of policy people, media people, federal bureaucrats who sort of sit in this vertical orbit and and decide what the issues are going to be, decide what people are going to be talking about, and then sort of push it out. So I guess one question to you is how organized and intentional do you see this sort of vertical being of policy advisors, journalists, media people, federal bureaucrats who sort of sit around together in this amorphous club and decide as as Didion pointed out, you know, what the issues are <laughs> what what the issues are going to be um who quite literally invent what she called the narrative of public life. Like who's directing this? How intentional is it? I guess, you know, the the low level uh, guy in, in in you know the the twenty two year old intern at CNN is not necessarily taking calls from from the White House um, and being told what what story to run. At least I would hope not. So right. I, I think I think a lot of people you know a lot of people within media, particularly lower level people, may not even be aware that it's happening. Or if they are aware, they just have a vague sense of you know. There is some kind of directive coming from up top, but you know we don't really know where or you know what what form it takes. But you know, I, I guess how how intentional and organized is this gang blob. of of yeah, yeah this blob of 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 people inventing the narrative of public life? So I think at the I, I struggled with this for a long time because um, at the level of reporters. I mean, there's no like commissar who comes down and like gives you the order on what the narrative of the day is. It, that stuff is largely internalized. It comes from it comes from a lifetime of interacting with editors. So you know, by the time you get to the point of you know being in a position to write a front page story for the New York Times or a cover story for Rolling Stone, in my case, or whatever. You've already internalized the values of the business to the point where you know what's a story they like and what's a story they don't like. Now, what's what was fascinating for me as a young reporter when I when I was first going out, particularly on the presidential campaign story, because I got to I, I was I was on the bus, right? Like yeah. there, there really there really is a bus uh, or, or or a plane. And I would sit with people who who were, you know, the most influential political reporters in the country. And I would listen to them talk about which candidates they were going to decide to take seriously and which ones they were going to to describe as fringe, which ones they were going to to describe as electable, which ones um, they liked, which ones they didn't like, which ones uh, they, they they were already settling ahead of time on the themes that were likely like the the way they would frame it is they would be talking amongst themselves about well here's what's going to hurt this this candidate or that candidate right um, they would say things like well Dean is too he's too pointed he's too far to the left uh, this is Howard Dean they're talking about in, in 2004 right 
So, and I, and I remember this cause I was, uh, I was invited on this, um, tour around the country with the Dean campaign. It was called the, the grassroots express where Howard Dean was trying to introduce himself to the national press corps and was kind of hoping to get an, a solid footing with the, with the reporters by giving them a lot of personal access. But on the very first day of the, of the trip in the back of the plane, I was listening to all the reporters talking about all the different ways they were going to beat the crap out of the guy. Uh, and the, the reasons basically weren't that he was, well, there were mainly it was because he was a critic of the war, but the other really big thing that he had done to arouse the ire of the political establishment was that he had an alternative way of raising money that was not acceptable. Like he was going directly to people through the internet. This was a new, a new, new thing at the time. Bernie did it very successfully in 2020. Yeah, exactly. That had never been done before because, because, and the reason that's significant is because the donors had always had complete control over the candidates. Like if you couldn't get all the big donors, you, you weren't going to be the nominee. That's just, that's just the way it worked. Dean was actually leading in the polls without getting any of those big donors, which was, you know, a, a major no-no. So the reporters, they didn't frame it in those terms, but they were talking amongst themselves saying, yeah, you know, I think he's just too far to the left. And then I would watch, you know, them interacting with him throughout the rest of the trip. And 50 times a day, he would get these questions like, so do you think you're too far left for for the average American? And he would answer it fine for like the first 100 times. And then eventually he would start to lose his patience. And then they would say, see, He's got a personality problem and that's how, that's how they do it. You know, like they, it's, it's like a high school. It, they, you know, it's a bunch of people get together and they just kind of, they just kind of decide that some people are cool, some people aren't. And, um, they get very addicted to this, this, uh, power to decide who gets to be in and who gets to be out. And that's what was so fascinating about Trump is that they, they, they decided right away that he was unacceptable and he won anyway. And that's why I think that's one of the reasons they can't stand him so much. Yeah. No, I, I mean, he really turned, turned the tables on a lot of things. I have to ask half facetiously, you know, hearing some of this, it makes you think, I guess my one question to you is like, do we, do we live in a country with kingmakers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they, they brag openly about it. I mean, go back to 2008, you'll see the now disgraced Mark Halperin, who used to be ABC's uh, big campaign writer. He wrote this thing called The Note, and it was it was the big insider des- destination. Like if you wanted to know what the theme of campaign coverage was going to be that day, you clicked on The Note every morning. And Halperin used to write about this thing he called the Gang of 500. And his whole thesis was that 500 people controlled America. It's very similar to what you were talking about with Joan Didion. Mm. Basically, he said there were lobbyists, donors, journalists, politicians, heads of uh, think tanks. And those were the people who, before the election process started, already had everything essentially lined up. And they were the, they were the deciders. And it was sort of the job of the campaign reporters to express the will of the gang of 500. And he, and he, he bragged a lot about how he had almost all of them on his Rolodex. And, and so they, they were very openly celebrating their kingmaking role, right? Uh, and they had, and this is one of, one of the things that you, you get back to one of your first questions. 
the the degree to which people were so deeply annoyed by that, like the inability to realize that people would read that and think, fuck you, I'm not going to like, you know, listen to what you're saying after, after you, you know, you brag about something like that. They, they just didn't get it. They thought, they thought it was cool uh, that they were kind of assuming that position. And, and yeah, uh, but, but I think again, the, the king making facility, it broke down under Trump. It just didn't, it just stopped working. Right. I was I was watching an episode of Succession recently. I don't know if you watch watch the TV show and there was, you know, some sort of little political secret conference for Republican donors and they 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 sort of jokingly called the conference like picking our next president, which is they were picking the 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 Republican nominee. But yeah. you know this. They 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 had a thing called the invisible primary. I don't know if you ever read about that. Uh, no, there's a book. No, called, uh, what, why don't you talk about that a little bit? There's even a book. I think it's. I think there's even a book called the invisible primary, and it's based. Yeah, it's and it's based on the idea that um, the nominee is basically chosen before before the formal RNC, uh, yeah. election process starts. And it's all about lining up the donors, the party leaders, and the major figures in the media. And if you go back and look, you'll see you'll see people referencing the winner of the invisible primary. And in 2016 that was that was Jeb Bush. And he of course got three delegates total. So it was a complete breakdown of that system. But they believe very implicitly in this idea that if you get if you get the big these three big players on board and they they give 150 or 200 million dollars to the right candidate, then basically it's decided. Like every now and then, there's a contest between two candidates who who are essentially identical policy wise, and they're adjudicating small differences between what the population likes, like between Clinton and Obama in 2008. But for the most part, the invisible primary was very predictive until it wasn't. <laughs> right. I guess hearkening uh, back to some of your other previous work, you know, I was asking about how Hate Inc. is is playing out today. Uh, Eleven years before you wrote Hate Inc., you wrote The Great Derangement, and you know, it seems that there was another Great Derangement which tore through America in 2016 with the election of Trump. Um, and then again uh, in 2020 with a lot of the discourse around the Black Lives Matter protests. So I guess to begin with, uh, could you define what you mean by uh, the great derangement and then talk a little bit about how you see that playing out today, you know, more than a decade after after you wrote the initial book? Yeah, it's funny. Nor- normally, my predictive powers are pretty, pretty weak. Like I... Uh... I have a tremendous history of picking the wrong candidates to win elections and everything like that. Yeah. But with, uh, with the great derangement, basically what I was, I was drawing upon the experience of covering presidential campaigns, among other things. I was noticing that there was this increasing problem about authority with information. So because people no longer trusted the mainstream press as much as they had previously, uh, increasingly Democrats and Republicans especially were not, when they had arguments, they were, the problem wasn't so much that they disagreed with each other. The problem was that they didn't, they weren't arguing with the same sets of facts. Like they, they were, they were getting 
their information with the internet, they, they were now essentially reality shopping and they were getting their information in a way that was uh, unusual. Like, you know, again, back in the seventies, everybody was watching the same three networks. So even if they disagreed with one another, they, they had a commonly debated set of facts. Now that started to disappear in 2008 and ex- it, it accelerated every time, especially every time the, the national media did something that kind of was sort of off-putting, like the WMD episode. You know, you, it, it, it pushed people further and further away. And I think now by 2016 and 2020, basically most of America inhabits separate factual universes. Like we're, we mostly don't believe the same stuff. And what's interesting about that, particularly interesting about that, is that a lot of a lot of what the right is reading versus what people on the center left are reading. It's not like they're one side's reading facts and one side is reading lies. It's just in many cases, they're just reading different facts. And so the problem with that is that you just end up with a population that is increasingly dug in, doesn't have a common frame of reference. And it makes politics extremely difficult because, you know, people don't really know how to talk to one another anymore. Right. No, I mean, I, I wrote a column on this recently, actually, or that covered in part, in part some of this. Um, I was critically the, the, the column was called uh, Noble Intentions, Counterproductive Results. And it was how it was in general about how uh, <laughs> Republicans and Democrats want, you know, the same end result in general, but they have very different ways of, of getting there. And so, you know, you look at something like police brutality, for example, um, you can sort of paint statistics in in any way you want. I know you, you wrote a whole book on the, on the Eric Garner situation, but, Mm -hmm. uh, if you really want to save black lives, you know, perhaps pulling police out of communities that, that need it most isn't isn't the most wise thing to do, like <laughs> shock shocking idea. But uh, the statistics of of police brutality, when you look at like a- again, you know, these terms used to mean something, but left versus right media outlets, it's the same data just presented in in different ways. So totally totally understand <laughs> where where you're coming from on that one. Yeah, and the the police brutality. Uh, issue is a classic example of how y- you can tell almost any story you want looking at the data without lying, you know, and, and it's very frustrating because, you know, I, I think a guiding principle that's that's pretty consistent and pretty universally true in almost all cases is that most problems are extremely complicated and it's very rare that one side is all right and one side is all wrong with the, you know, the policing issue, you know, I, I was very frustrated during after the George Floyd incident because, you know, I'd spent years and years of my life covering that problem. And a, a major reason that we have, you know, a lot of police brutality incidents is because we have a really, really stupid system of policing in this country that's based upon a strategy of just stopping tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people for basically no reason at all and searching them on the street. And because we've artificially heightened the amount of contact between the police and the population, 
a statistically larger amount of those contacts goes wrong and people get killed. And this is what this is one of the things that if you talk to to both Republicans and liberals, they will both they will both have a place of agreement there. They'll be like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, like that that is stupid. Maybe we could fix that. But rather than focusing on the fixable issues in policing, we, you know, the way the media reports stuff, it's just designed to make people emotional and, and get them upset and make it harder and harder to come up with solutions that are that are satisfactory. You talk about pulling pulling police out of um, inner city neighborhoods, you know, that that's just bad reporting, because if you go to tough neighborhoods in in, in American cities, you know, almost I would say like there's a, a majority of the people in these neighborhoods actually want a more visible police presence. They don't want more cops necessarily, right? But they they they, they want they want the police they want they want police to be seen more so that there's like less drug dealing, there's less violence on the street, that kind of stuff. Uh, they want to be able to go back and forth to their jobs without being you know hassled, that sort of thing. But that's taboo to say in kind of like center left media now. So there's this illusion that people have this feeling about it based on, I don't know, something they read in school. I mean, I don't know. It, it's very frustrating. It is. It is absolutely frustrating. And it's it's funny is probably not the right word, but I think it's uh, deeply unsettling, I guess, that um, there seems to be a disconnect between policymakers and the people on whom the policies are being enacted. You have oftentimes you have these white liberals with lofty ideas who want to speak for, you know, inner city black populations. And it's it's like, why don't we actually ask people what they want instead of, you know, deciding, yeah. deciding for them? Absolutely. The last people you should ask about policing issues are people who live in towns that don't have policing problems. Right. Yeah. Or or live on the other side of town, you know. It's it's like, right. um, or live nowhere, no, not even in the same state, but who suddenly right. become experts when it times to make a, when it comes time to make uh, a policy, they suddenly become the most, uh, like knowledgeable, qualified uh, six PhDs um on the subject yeah i know yeah i know but um yeah we can we can we can move past this this issue otherwise i mean we could talk about this for hours um and you've written about this for years so yeah um, yeah i guess you know you you spent a fair bit of time in in the soviet union and and you wrote the book the exile came out of that uh reminded me in some ways of ben meserick wrote this book called the rise of the oligarchs like i mm. forget what the the title after the colon is but it was basically about you know posts. It's probably uh, alliterative, something, something, and something. Right? Yeah, it was. It was. There were three, you know, so, yeah, it was, it was a catchy title. Crisis <laughs> coalition and something. Yeah, yeah here, exactly. Yeah. Something, something with alliteration that sounded nice. But, yeah. you know, you, you, you were there in the... <laughs> In the Soviet Union, and so you know, as as I'm I'm sure you're aware, in 1990, Charles Krauthammer wrote that famous unipolar uh, unipolar moment piece, or he coined the term um, unipolar moment. We are no longer living in a world where there are two, where there's a contest for ideological hegemony, um, where now there is one world superpower and the other has collapsed. So in terms of the unipolar moment, where are we today in terms of 
of global geopolitics. A lot of people have observed the decline of American empire. In fact, we ran an article on this for uh, for Quillette the other day by Andrew Roberts, who's a British historian. But I mean, Afghanistan is is one example. We have uh, China screwing around in Taiwan, Iran screwing around with the bomb, Russia screwing around with Ukraine. And so it seems that Afghanistan, for a lot of Americans, was a deeply unsettling moment in that it it sort of pierced this veil of America being the the competent yeah well competent for one but like a global force in the world that could be sort of trusted i guess or or competent is is a good word cuz whether you think it's good or bad what america is doing like to a large degree Throughout the 20th century, their, their their foreign policy was generally they achieved a lot of their policy aims. Uh, we don't need to, to get into a lot of the the the, the fuckery that went on in in Latin America in, in right. the Cold War. But just to pare back, I don't mean to go on for too long. 1990, Charles Krauthammer wrote about the unipolar moment. Where are we today in terms of global ge- geopolitics and you know the the contest of ideological hegemony? Yeah. Um... I recently read a book uh, by this very nutty dead person named James Burnham. I think it was called the Man- the managerial revolution. I think it was called. Well, he gamed out um, all it, these World War three, four, five, six, seven, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it had, it had an introduction by Orwell, but his core thesis was really interesting. In between being like stupendously wrong about many things. He predicted a future uh, that was kind of fascinating where the world would devolve into these kind of super states that were neither capitalist nor socialist. They would be dominated by a managerial class and there would be a, a, a never ending kind of contest between super states that would never be able to quite overtake one another. One would be based in America, one would be based in Europe and one would be based in Asia. Now, that's Russia, China, remarkably and the, similar. And the U.S. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or 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 Europe, China, and the U.S. Yeah, yeah, like I, I don't know. I don't know exactly yeah. how you, how you would do it. You know, Russia to me almost doesn't matter because no, I, yeah, I misspoke. <laughs> yeah, because it's such a small economic power. But but you know, I, to me, that's that's more descriptive than than what uh, you know the neoconservatives thought was going to happen. After 1990, I mean, the people like Bill Crystal from the Weekly Standard in the 90s were, were writing about something they, they called benevolent hegemony, where or hegemony or however you pronounce that, where the whole idea was, well, now that the Soviet Union has collapsed, that this is not the time to indulge in a peace dividend. This is the time to put our foot on the on the gas pedal and sort of expand American influence to as many places as we can. I think they tried to do that. And what we found is that, you know, that resulted in a, in a lot of the more spectacular failures of American foreign policy of late, including Afghanistan and Iraq. That, But America still is this massively powerful country that has, you know, 800 military bases around the world and just almost unlimited supplies of weapons and we're not going away anytime soon. Neither is China. Neither is neither is uh, Europe. 
but these countries aren't, they're not really classically democracies. They're not really, you know, I mean, it's, we're just headed what do you into mean this by that classically democracy? I just I just think the the United States in particular is is evolving in this kind of more more authoritarian direction that is farther and farther away from the democratic ideal that we were all you know sort of raised to believe in growing up and um and we're starting to more and more resemble the societies that we once reviled like China you know that has mass surveillance and a social credit system and that sort of thing. My pessimistic view on all this is that we're kind of evolving in the direction of becoming a, you know, a less than free super state. You know, I, I hope that's not true, but it feels like it. I I would hope so as well. <laughs> but, um, Matt, <laughs> yeah. um, let me ask you, I, I want to be respectful of your time here. Can I get into some journalism-based questions? Sure, yeah. You got to jump to Yeah, okay, cool. So shifting gears away from some of the more political stuff and into questions sort of about the American identity. Self-invention seems to be like foundational to the American identity. You know, we, we think about Alexander Hamilton, the great Gatsby. I personally, I think about like little Richard or even something like Motley Crue. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I like, love Motley Crue. I mean, I wrote it. I wrote, I did research at Princeton on Motley Crue. It, it just to sort of throw, really uh, throw some spice into, into the history department. <laughs> but, I've got, I've got a crew shirt somewhere, somewhere here. So yeah. Yeah. Gotta, gotta love, uh, Nikki, Vince, Tommy, um, Tommy and Mick. But you know, this, this concept of radical self-invention can, go askew sometimes. And, you know, one one example I, I think of is the Elizabeth Holmes example. Um, mm-hmm. Someone who, you know, she wants to create her own conception of self, but it, it goes awry and she sort of ventures into illegality. I mean, you know, uh, Gatsby was was a bootlegger. A lot of that was uh, based on illegality as well. Um, but you have a current book now on, on, on drug dealers, the business secrets of of drug dealing. And so I think about the American dream gone awry, like are people trying to hack the American dream? Are people disrupting, for lack of uh, a better word? That's a good question. The American That's dream. That's a great question. Yeah. So like, I mean, self-invention is it's foundational to the American identity, but where does it go awry, particularly in relation to, to you know, this book that you have out now? Yes. Yeah, so it's funny. You mentioned, you mentioned Elizabeth Holmes. Obviously, we have a great and very rich history of con artists in America. But, you know, I, I would say where I, where I used to live before in Russia, they have an even richer history of that. Like um, there's a famous story about a, uh, uh, after the uh, War of 1812, a Russian officer uh, who had made it all the way to France during the war runs into another Russian who had just come from Russia. And he said, like, well, what are they doing back in the motherland? And his answer is stealing. And, and, uh, and that it sounds better in Russian, but basically that kind of sums up the Russian character. There's, you know, the, all the books that I loved about Russian literature, like Dead Souls, they're about con, con artists. It's like something that's deeply embedded in the Russian character is, um, being really good at ripping people off. Whereas the American legend is much more about like, it, it's tied to performance in addition to hucksterism, right? So like the PT Barnum concept of, 
there's a sucker born every minute, but you got to put a show on too, right? Like, you know, you, you, you got to earn it a little bit. Like that's part of the American idea is we, we don't celebrate the person who just flat out steals. We celebrate the person who is a combination of combination of a con artist and somebody who uh, is able to deliver the goods. Right. And I think, I, I think the, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in 2008 or after 2008 writing about the mortgage backed securities thing, which was another massive con artistry story. You know, really it was a Ponzi scheme, which was sort of an American invention also, but we, we don't celebrate those people. Like those people are, they're supposed to be villains in the American story, right? Like the, and, and the people we do celebrate are the people who, you know, who, who kind of defy expectations, go against the grain, but make something of themselves that's, that's kind of positive and lasting and cool. And, but yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think there's been like this shift in sort of pessimism about what the American dream is. Like people don't really believe it. So all they really focus on is, well, how do I get the money? And it becomes reduced. The whole concept of upward social mobility becomes reduced to just, you know, cash in a duffel bag or just right. literally just the money. Right. Yeah. And, then, and that's what Scarface was like. So the, like the movie Scarface was, was sort of about that. Right. It's like, you know, he comes to America and he loves it. Right. Like everything about it just sort of clicks with his personality. And of, of course he's a, he's a drug dealer, but he, but he's still got to build something. Right. And that's, and that's still different from, from this idea of just of doing what the banks did in 2008, which is just uh, coming up with an algorithmic formula for just stealing off the top 30, 30% of everybody's wealth. Like that's just pessimism. You know what I mean? It's that, that's not PT Barnum. That's, that's something really depressing. It, it, it's, it's, you get to that mindset by, not believing that there's any future, so you might as well just steal what's left. And having covered a lot of uh, American industry for the last 20 years, you see this progressively more and more short-term kind of thinking that has infected American business, and that's really depressing to me because you know we also have this amazing history of just inventing stuff that changes the world, and we still do that, but. But yeah, I think it's in competition with that pessimism too. Yeah, certainly. I think on the other hand, though, a question is like this growth of the idea that you can hack or that you can, that you can hack the American dream or that you can short short circuit it or jump the queue, basically. I, social mobility queue jumping is a term that I use sometimes. Um, right. There used to be... Well, that's the Gatsby theme, right? Well, that, right. Yeah, it, it is the Gatsby theme. <laughs> I have a column coming out about this, actually. But it's, it's you know, there there was for a long time an understanding that Social mobility did not happen in one generation. That social mobility, upward social mobility anyway, would generally take, you know, one, it would generally take two or three generations. Parents come over, they're immigrants, they work really hard, the, you know, and they, you know, force edu- like they value education quite highly for the kids. Kids do a little bit better, plus they have their education behind them you know, set up a business, whatever, make their money. And then uh, their children, two generations later, you know, have, 
you know, realize the American dream or, or really kicked themselves up the social mobility ladder. Then, you know, I, I don't really know where this began. I, I might point to the 1980s when, you know, perhaps Wall Street and, you know, Gordon Gecko and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, I, you know, I, yeah, honestly, financialization. Yeah, mm -hmm. financialization. I don't know where it began, but there there became... I don't, I don't necessarily want to say an impatience, but there became an idea that social mobility was not something that you necessarily had to wait two or three generations for, or that you would sort of had to like put in the, the time, blood, sweat, and tears into is something that could be hacked, not only within one generation, but within a matter of years. That or, mi or minutes now. Like, or mi you know. Yeah, with NFTs and crypto and all this shit. No, I think that's, I think that's right. I think... Uh... If you, if you look at the difference between somebody like Mitt Romney and his dad, right? So, you know, his, Mitt Romney's father obviously was the head of AMC Motors. So classic American capitalist, you know, built factories uh, at a time when the relationship between banking and industry was, you know, banks were there to finance the factories. They were there to finance the improvements that were needed. The companies would make money. A rising tide would sort of, kind of, sort of lift all boats, and you, you growth in one area couldn't exist without everybody kind of growing a little bit, right? Uh, Mitt Romney's, you know, his generation came along, and they realized, you know, the, this financialization generation came along, and they realized, like, we we actually don't need growth, like real on the ground you know, brick and mortar growth to get massively rich overnight. You know, the, the, this was the innovation of the kind of Mike Milken generation, which is we, we can finance takeovers. We can do private equity deals. I mean, the, what uh, Romney ended up doing at being capital was basically the same thing that Gordon Gecko was doing at, at wall street. Uh, you know, these, these, private equity, hostile takeovers of companies where you're taking borrowed money to, to take over a company, you, you plunder it for all of its assets, you force the company to be on the hook for the money that you borrowed, uh, and then everybody walks away rich without actually having to do anything. You, you don't have to build anything. You can just, you can just end, take financial engineering and get rich through a series of trans transactions. Like transactions becomes the, um, you know, financial transactions becomes the thing instead of making products. That's what we, that's what we don't, that's what we make now. We make transactions rather than products. And yeah, I think that changed the mentality of this country. I think, I think that was part of, part of what led to 2008. I can't tell you how many people I met when I was covering the, the mortgage thing who, who saw Wall Street, um, when they were growing up and thought Gecko was supposed to be the hero of the movie. And so, yeah, I think that's, the, the, this idea that, that that you can jump the line, you don't have to work hard. Well, they are working they, hard, but I mean, they're working hard, the, but the the out the, the the length, the length, right? Yeah, you don't, or, or you don't have to, you don't have to to do the, you know, the 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 kind of thing you were talking about before, the process that 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 took so long, that generational deal. No, you can get it in all fell one fell swoop now. And yeah, I think that, I think that's the neg that's a negative development in our history. And, and certainly kind of responsible for some of the populist rage that you see. Like if you, if you look at phenomena like GameStop, right? 
where you have all these people who are somewhere between 25 and 35 or, or 25 and 40. And they, you know, they grew up with this uh, being told that, oh, yeah, you have to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and uh, work your way up the chain. And that's how you make the money. And then they look at Wall Street. And they see that, no, that's actually not how it really works. Like you can, you can make money, you know, a fortune overnight. And if you screw up, you get bailed up by the government because you know somebody or whatever it is. And they think that's incredibly unfair. And so that's why they're slightly more complicated than that. Well, I mean, I I think a lot of them think that. I mean, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the people, the GameStop people, yeah, 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 the GameStop people. Yes, yes, sure, sure. Yeah, and so, so there's this attitude out there that, like, if they're gonna do that, if if the if they're gonna jump the line, if, if the whole system is rigged, then I might as well, you know, try to rig it for myself, you know. And I, I'm a little bit sympathetic to that, uh, but it's depressing at the same time. It is. It is depressing. You know, I, I'm not up on on uh, what Mitt Romney was doing at Bank Capital. Um, I just I don't. Well, he's a I private equity guy. So. A, well, yeah, but I mean, there's private equity is not inherently a bad thing. I mean, it's it can be a no, great thing. but it can, it can be. But like for instance, I, I covered what ha- what what Bain did with KB Toys in, in Western Massachusetts. So they went out to investors, they borrowed a ton of money. They, they, they took over a company that wasn't doing too badly. It was, I mean, it, it was having some issues, but it wasn't like a disaster. And they immediately imposed massive fees on the company for the, for the privilege of being managed by a company that it didn't want to be taken over by. You know, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a story about this. You know, fairly soon the company was in much more dire straits. Now Bain wins in that situation because the, the, the way that is set up, it does, it doesn't really matter whether the company succeeds or not. They still make the money. So that's, that's one of the things. That, you know, the, the, the sort of private equity takeover, yes, it can turn around companies that are dysfunctional, but it, it, that's not a prerequisite for the private equity company, you know, making money. No, I, look, I, I understood. I mean, and I, like, it, I, it makes sense. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and read some of your old pieces. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this, but like in general, I, I, I sort of understand like, you know, uh, stripping down a company for parts and just like financialization, um, just producing, you know, uh, as, as you said before, shareholder dividends rather than, than, than real product. Right. I mean, it's fundamentally different from what he did with like Staples. Staples was like a tr- traditional like venture capital. Let's start a new business kind of a thing. So anyway, we don't, we don't have to go there. But. No, no, no. Well, on the, I want to go to the other end of the spectrum, which is like drug dealing or hoaxers, <laughs> uh-huh. hucksters, all of it, because that's also like, an attempt to short circuit the the American dream a little bit, um, or at least you know, uh, cue jump. <laughs> and 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 you wrote this, you've written this book now about it. So uh, maybe tell us tell us a little bit about that in 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 relation to to um, American identity, self invention, this this kind of stuff. Yeah. So this was a really fun book. I, I there was somebody I knew who I I, I, have, a, I have an anonymous co author. Who was a, a friend of mine who I knew in another, whom I knew, I guess, in, in, in another capacity for years and without guessing that he had a secret life. Uh, he had been kind of a drug kingpin. He was, 
mean, he dealt marijuana, but he had been doing it on a pretty enormous scale for, for years and years and years. And he had, um, he had never been caught, never been busted for drugs even once in his life. And he had a really, really interesting story to tell about all the rules that he had uh, developed over the years for avoiding getting caught. So the, the book ends up being kind of a how-to guide to making money illegally in this country. But what's interesting about it is that he views, he's, he's sort of an arch capitalist character. It's very, it's very similar to Scarface, except that he's, I think, a more, <laughs> more appealing character. You know, he, he doesn't really see a difference between what he does and what Goldman Sachs or some other company does. When marijuana starts to become legal in California, he realizes that in order to become part of the club, in order, in order to become a, um, a legal regulated marijuana dealer, he has to essentially do the same thing that he would have done as an illegal drug dealer, which is pay a fee to, uh, whoever the regional, you know, drug lord in the area was to operate. And so it's, it, it's, it's kind of a book about, you know, what capitalism looks like to somebody who's, uh, who's viewing it from the street level. Uh, it's a perverse it's, rendition of the yeah. American dream. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's dark, uh, but it's funny. You know, uh, he's, he's a very funny character. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I guess part of the question is other than for the sake of great literature, why would he spill the beans? I mean, he's got the, the secret sauce, the good stuff. Why should we be he privy had, to this? He had to get out for a reason that was that's kind of hard to explain then we don't need to get into it matt that's all right he, no no it's okay basically he he got he, he was gonna get caught if he kept going was what happened and so uh and he didn't want to do time he didn't didn't want to have to go through all that so he got out and but he had a great story to tell and we were we were friends and we 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 sort of figured that it, that it would be cool to write this book one of the one of the things that he talked about was that a lot of drug dealers don't know how to do what they do. Uh, they, they they get most of their knowledge from movies, and that he wanted to he, he sort of wanted almost as a public service um, <laughs> a to, public service to, make, to write yes. the book. Yeah. How to a nice yeah. a, how, a listicle? It's like a BuzzFeed article. It, you know, but it but it it come it comes out in a way that's funny. I, I think you know. I mean, there's like a there's like a deep irony to the whole thing and uh, you know it, it, for I, I did it for the because i thought it would make kind of a funny almost like a funny novel and it might you know as a, as a satirical commentary on american 20th century or 21st century american capitalism it, it, it's it kind of works i think yeah so yeah that's why we did it fair enough that fascinating topic i will say my friend you certainly have range from writing about <laughs> you know following around trump on the campaign trail to writing about Post post Soviet Russia to writing about the business secrets of drug dealing. There's there's few well, areas. Old, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now nah, I mean there's few areas that 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 you don't touch. Um, which it's, it's good. I mean, and to that end, you know, I as well as many others. When I think of you, I, I think about Hunter Thompson. Um, like you've often been compared to Hunter Thompson. I know you spoke at Gonzo Fest in Louisville a couple of years ago, and I wrote the introduction to the new. Fear and Loathing. Really? Uh, the Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail, yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Well, when I have to get a copy. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that was cool. That was a highlight. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I guess my question to you is, I wrote my thesis at Princeton about this, so I have my own opinion, but I'm interested in yours. Um, what was the legacy of, of Hunter Thompson on the institution of journalism and on American popular culture at large? See, I, I look at Hunter Thompson as being more like a, a great fiction writer than as than as somebody who had a really profound influence on journal. He did, obviously, because he's been imitated by everybody, not successfully, including me. We you know we all, whether we want to or not, you know, uh, we all end up trying to imitate him because he has such a way of, of, uh, with words. But he he was a a, a sort of a uniquely gifted writer. It's just some people are just born with this ability to create uh, an instantly relatable narrator. And he had this, he had this amazing way of sort of rendering ordinary situations, you know, three and almost four dimensional. You know what I mean? Like his, his, his characters were just sort of, they were, they were unforgettable and they were hilarious. Like the the humor is so I, I, like for me, like books like, um, Fear and Loathing and on, on the campaign trail, they're structured like, um, like sort of epic comic novels, like, uh, the castle or the trial. Like if you, if you actually read it from that point of view, it's, he, it's a, it's a person, it's a sane person trapped in a, in a universe of stupidities and, and inanities who is never going to find the great answer, even though, uh, he, you know, he wants to desperately, but the reader knows it's never going to happen. Um, so it's written like a classic comedy. And he was just, uh, he, he was just unbelievably brilliant. It's funny for me because I had the same job as him and I, I get compared to him all the time, but, uh, not even remotely this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, co- I covered the same beat. I, you know, I even had an illustrator who kind of, who, who illustrated a little bit like Ralph Steadman in a way. Did you work um, for Jan Wenner? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I worked, I worked for a bunch of the people who I, I worked for people who edited on her. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, a monumental not even remotely this. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. Editing yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Some of those stories are unbelievable. They're just yeah, sending it. Yeah, I, he, I would send in, you know, random faxed pages at three in the morning. He would demand to have his room stocked with. Uh, all kinds of supplies. Yeah, where they would have to, they would have to force a big amphetamine pill down his mouth while he was unconscious to wake him up. Yeah, um, I've, I've heard about that one. But. Yeah, that, that that was an interesting story. But but no, I mean, he, he he not even the same like sort of type of writer. I'm not even the same type of writer as him. He's he's uh. He's much more like a Mark Twain or somebody like that. Like I've never heard that comparison. It, it just so happens. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, th- th- think think about how much you identify with the narrator in, in, uh, yeah, in a Mark Twain. Yeah, like Huckleberry uh, Finn or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or, or or any of his essays, like The Awful German Language or Pen and Workgroup's Literary Offenses, like... You know, he, he grabs you in the same way, and, and Thompson is, is so unique in that respect. He's an so ordinary what, guy. The, the narrator is an ordinary guy, but, I mean, he's not really ordinary, but he's an awful word to use, but definitely relatable. Like, we can all, we can all like, identify with him it, a little bit. Absolutely, and this is one of the things that, like, a lot of commentators get wrong about him. When he died, there were there were all these sort of detractors who said, like, 
you know, he was, he was this talentless nobody who kind of, who attracted young people because he, he was taking lots of drugs and he was, you know, sort of a party animal, right? Which was, you know, which was sort of over celebrated, but that's not what actually what people are connecting with in his books. They're connecting with like the earnest, the earnest person who's just sort of desperately trying to find, you know, the answer and never quite can, which is a, which is something everybody can relate to. Like he's, he, he, you know, that, that quest for meaning, um, the perennial the, quest for, for meaning. <laughs> For meaning, yeah, the great shark hunt, right? Like the, or the savior or whatever it is. Uh, and he never gets there, but he's, he's just, he's just so relatable. You just like him and, and you, and you're, and you're right there with him, you know? And, um, so he was unique in that respect. He absolutely was one of, I think, the great, certainly of the 20th century. It's funny when I was writing my thesis, um, I, I wrote a, the thesis was called, um, like it, it was, it was on literary journalism. So I looked at Hunter Thompson, John Didion and, uh, George Plimpton. And I have mm. to say Hunter was, <laughs> I use his first name as if I knew him personally, though I did, I, I, I talked to people who knew him, but he, he was one of the most fun to read. I liked, I really enjoyed reading George Plimpton and, and Joan Didion. But the voice, you know, it was, it's the voice. It's like, I listen, I remember during, during lockdown, during the first lockdown here in Australia, I was living out in this, uh, I wouldn't use remote, but basically this, this town that's like six hours up the coast of Sydney, a very small town. I'm from New York, like different. So I would, you know, suburban, deeply suburban, but Mm -hmm. I would go for runs every morning. um, And I remember listening to, Fear and Loathing narrated, and I'd read the book before, but uh, when I listened to this book narrated, I was like, Jesus, you know, this guy is, he's angry. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I certainly, I remember when I, when I, when I wrote my own book, I would, I would think to myself sometimes, how would Hunter say this? And then I sort of like grew out of that a little bit. And I was like, no, 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 just develop your own voice. But when I went back to edit it every now and then, I would think like, how can we pile on the adjectives or like drawing some crazy cultural references that no one would think of? I I, I almost think of what he was doing. It's a crude, a, a very crude metaphor, but almost sort of like in the way that when you listen to a really good rap song, you think like, how did they draw connections between these things? Right. Hunter did. Right. He drew these just wild, wild connections. Um, very a compelling descriptive language, I guess I would say. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And he and he was he was drawing from you know different kinds of writers who weren't journalists and kind of stealing. I mean, he's, he does what every writer does. He steals from all of his favorite writers, made it into a big mishmash. You know, his, his technique of kind of ending sentences with ellipses and everything. Like he got, he got that because he loved, he, he'd read a lot of Celine. You know, he liked Nelson Algren. I don't really see a lot of Algren in, in his books, but you know, apparently it was in there. But a lot of people ask this question of like, can you teach somebody to be a great writer or can you get there by repetition and all that? And to, to a limited extent, I think you can, but the, you really also just have to be born with it. Like some of those word choices, he just, you know, that's, that's God given to me. And he, he was, he was, uh, at the, t- at the top of my list in terms of 
people who's who were just totally original and impossible to imitate. I would say in America, among Americans anyway. Yeah, yeah. no, not necessarily a bad thing, though. I think it's it's OK to have, you know, great celebrated figures and, you know, we can acknowledge them for their flaws and whatever. But you, we don't necessarily need another Hunter Thompson. People say if only Hunter were around today, we, we have great historical figures, literary figures, political figures, even though a little bit more rare, who have an impact in their time. And, you know, when they die, we can draw on the lessons of history and appreciate them. But, you know, I, I think back to Nick Carraway and Gatsby, just, just imploring Gatsby's character saying, look, Jay, you can't repeat the past. And Gatsby says, of course you can, of course you can. So when, when I see people trying to imitate other writers or imitate uh, past artists or politicians or musicians even like i look at some of the well, i don't want to call them out by name but uh i look there there are a few bands today trying to like be motley crew in 2021 and the fact of the matter is it do, it doesn't play it's just like kitschy and absurd i'm talking about steel panther but um <laughs> uh, if, you, if you're familiar with them but you know just appreciate things for what they were. Let them go. Anyway, I want to ask you one one last question here, Matt, and then sure. uh, then I'll let you go. But Ghislaine Maxwell's on trial now, or Ghislaine, can never pronounce it. You know, I think it's Ghislaine. Ghislaine, yeah. So Ghislaine Maxwell is is on trial now. Obviously, there was the whole Epstein affair, you know, not so long ago, and then this the subsequent. Netflix documentary. So this is this is a very open-ended question, but because you're a prescient cultural observer, I guess I guess I just want to and if you if you don't want to comment on this, that's fine. But I guess I just want to ask what what can we take away from from this? What should we take away from this? Like what what did you personally take away from the Epstein affair um and now uh the Ghislaine um the Ghislaine trial even though it's not over? I mean, the, the Epstein affair is, I mean, I, for, first of all, it should have been fatal to a whole host of politicians and wasn't. The way that, the, you know, his death was reported was was comical in its uh, in the degree to which it was just not believable. And I don't know, I'm not I, I've never been like really conspiratorial. I've, I've always really believe that most of the conspiracies in American life are sort of banal and out in the open. Like that that's sort of the key to understanding America is that most of the ways that that society is rigged are unhidden. They're just boring and bureaucratic and uh and the public is just doesn't have the patience to to deal with it. This Epstein story has shaken my faith in that in that um in that model of how America works, though, because it's impossible to explain, you know, uh, in any way that's satisfactory uh, unless, you know, unless there's some kind of angle to it that involves a level of what's the way of putting it involves a level of involvement in, in, in American public affairs by the intelligence services that to a degree that I would never have thought possible before. Like, uh, manipulation of the news media, the, the, you know, the way that he, this person who should have gone away forever, you know, essentially got off the, the, the death that is 
so obviously, or it just doesn't really feel like a suicide to me. I'm sorry. Like, uh, and I'm not a big believer. I, I hate conspiracy stories, but this one feels like a conspiracy story. It, 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 it feels, you know, it, it, it feels, it feels like it speaks to a, something that we're not, we haven't been told about how, how the world works. And, uh, so I'm kind of fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by it too. I think, I can't remember if it was Rolling Stone. I think it was Rolling Stone that ran some kind of piece about the espionage, the potential espionage element in this. It was not in a lot of publications. It was, it was Vanity Fair. It was Vanity Yeah, okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> that wraps up the podcast. Thank you so much for, for coming on, Matt. I really appreciate it. No, thanks, Scott.